It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, one of the great things about being in talk radio as a lifelong fan of the medium is being able to work with and refer to as colleagues some people that are truly extraordinary and have accomplished some truly amazing things. I am very fortunate uh, to have as a colleague a man who is a veteran journalist, an award-winning journalist, and another man who is a New York Times best-selling author many times over, another fellow who is one of the most widely listened to nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts in the country and another fellow who was number one on cable news in prime time for a decade and a half or more. Oh, wait, all those folks are actually the same person. I am very, very pleased and honored to welcome veteran journalist and the host of the No Spin News on BillOReilly.com, the one and only Bill O'Reilly. Bill, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Sure, Frank. Thanks for the intro. I appreciate it. You know, years ago we spoke, I think this was five or six years ago, Trump was president and you had just written a column and you said that you thought Donald Trump was destroying cable news and you predicted a pretty grim future for cable news. Since then, we see the cord cutting every year. Fewer and fewer people have cable. We see the debacle of what's gone on at CNN. We see what happened in your old time slot uh, with the collapse of ratings there since Tucker Carlson left Fox News. What do you see as the future of cable news at this point? Well, it'll survive, but not nearly the way it used to be. Um, it's a niche operation now. They're, at Fox and CNN, they're cutting like crazy. CNN probably uh, will sell. The parent company, Discovery, Warner Brothers, will sell it. I think eventually Fox News will be sold as well, but that'll take a little bit more time. Because the enterprise isn't as dominant as it used to be. And Donald Trump has, uh, is responsible for a lot of it because what happened was when he entered into the arena, political arena, Frank, he got so many people to follow him. Mm. And it was divided between those who loved him, the MAGA people, and those who hated him. So then the cable news situations chose sides. Now, I left Fox News shortly after I did an interview with Trump uh, after his inauguration in um, January of 2017. And Fox then was all in for Trump. Not me so much. I was uh, always skeptical of everybody and would ask the hardest questions I could think of. And I didn't care what party or what ideology. But CNN set itself up as a hate Trump network. NBC News certainly became that. And then when Trump left the presidency, there wasn't that big evil guy or the big champion guy around. And so a lot of people stopped watching. And then the other people divided up into tribes. And the mass audience that I got was um, gone. It vanished. 
You alluded to the fact that on your program, it wasn't just a right wing echo chamber. You had Republicans watching, Democrats watching, a whole lot of independents watching. Really, on cable news these days, there's uh, there's nothing like that. And and I'm wondering what you think that portends for the future of the company of, of the country where you have sort of this tribalism where people just retreat to their corner of the world. They only listen to radio shows and television shows and read newspapers that reinforce their point of view. And you have a situation in this country where Republicans and Democrats don't just view one another as the loyal opposition. They view them as enemies to be destroyed. Is there any way you see that situation improving? I could improve. It depends on the management of these media operations. But I am not optimistic, um, Mm. particularly in the short term. You're absolutely right that the progressive left hates, and I mean with a capital H, conservative, traditional people, and they want to hurt them. I went through it every single day that I anchored at Fox News. Somebody was trying to hurt me. Somebody was trying to do stuff untoward. I had security guards where I went. I mean, it was crazy. And on the other side, the uh, right believes that the progressive left is trying to destroy the entire country. I mean, so the two sides are... um, Almost irreconcilable, delirious. Yeah, almost mm. delirious in their angst. And who's going to bring that down? I guess a charismatic leader that could spell out, "Look, this is what's best for the country and why." But we don't have that person in view yet. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. If people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Bill O'Reilly, veteran journalist, host of the No Spin News at BillOReilly.com, a best-selling author that has sold over 17 million copies. You can order the new book, Killing the Witches, at BillOReilly.com, which I want to ask you about in a minute, Bill. But what are the exceptions to sort of the left versus right echo chamber paradigm these days seems to be Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, some of the callers to this program who are his biggest champions are far right people that you might think are Trump supporters. I know you wrote in a book uh, over 20 years ago that your favorite politician of all time was Robert F. Kennedy Sr. How do you view his son and his son's candidacy? And where do you see that going this time around? So Robert Kennedy Jr. has a uh, town hall, Frank, this coming Wednesday on News Nation. Be interesting to see how he frames his candidacy um, because right now he doesn't have much of a chance. I mean, the Democratic machine has rallied around Joe Biden, who's shaky at best. I don't think Biden's going to make it uh, and run for reelection. He's declining so fast. And most Americans know that. I mean, it's visible and you can see it. But Bobby Kennedy Jr., I, I understand why the far right likes him. I mean, they don't like the vax. They didn't like the imposition of COVID restrictions. They thought that the government was overreaching and uh, they're suspicious of the government in general on everything. And Kennedy plays right into that. But I don't think he has enough constituency. And I'd be surprised if he really competes with Biden in a meaningful way. 
if Biden is not able, as you predict, to make this run, and it's easy to see why, either in terms of scandals or in terms of just his own age and infirmity, who do you see as the heir apparent? Uh, Gavin Newsom gets mentioned. Kamala Harris obviously is in the running. I'm sure Hillary Clinton is salivating over the opportunity. Who is uh, the person most likely to be the nominee? And is that a good situation for Trump or a bad situation? Well, any weakness in the Democratic Party is good for Trump. Um, and the party is in disarray because it understands how vulnerable President Biden is. So you can't run Kamala Harris if she's just incapable of doing the job as vice president, which is, I think, Frank, the easiest job in the United States of America. I think she's got the (laughs) easiest job and she can't even do it and she can't even get a sentence out. I mean, it's a disaster. Uh, Newsom wants to run. He's raised him a lot of money and he's he's, uh, the lead progressive guy. But California is a disaster. Millions of people are leaving the state, and all you got to do is look at what's happening in L.A. and San Francisco and look at the socialism that they're trying to impose on the folks. And is this what you want? Everybody want California? I don't think so. And then there really isn't anybody else. Hillary Clinton's never going to get the nomination. The only person that could possibly rally the Democratic core would be Michelle Obama. But she doesn't want to campaign. But she might not have to. Um, if she goes to the convention and the Democrats want her, they can put her on the ballot there without any primary stuff if nobody's got enough votes to be the nominee. And that has happened before in this country. And Michelle Obama, far and away, would be the most powerful candidate the Democrats could trot out there, but there's no indication that she wants to do that. Yeah, I can't imagine why she would want to get back into this uh, this area when she's making so much money and enjoys all the trappings of the bully pulpit without having to do any of the actual work. You mentioned uh, the Obamas. Obviously, you've interviewed not only President Trump, but Barack Obama, George W. Bush, presidents going all the way back to Jimmy Carter. Uh, last week, your former colleague Brett Baer did a very interesting interview with Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't sit for many interviews. Whenever you interview a president, it becomes a very high profile profile affair. You seem to have a the art of interviewing presidents down to very much a science. Any advice for future interviewers who might be interviewing a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden? Obviously, they have very different styles in terms of how they answer questions. But when you're interviewing a president, obviously, you have to be respectful, but you also don't want to let them get away with anything. How do you handle a challenge like that? Well, number one, you have to be realistic. So you can't force the president of the United States to answer a question. You just can't. What you can do is tell the audience that the president didn't answer the question in a polite way. So I've done that with Trump a number of times. He, I asked him a question. He goes off on a tangent, doesn't answer. And I said, you realize you didn't answer my question. I did that with Obama as well. Now, the key to my interviewing skills with the presidents, and I think I have more than more experience than anyone else in the country, is that I do a pre-interview with them myself, Mm. not with a producer or anything like that. It's a man to man. And I tell them, look, I understand that you can do five minutes on the color of my socks. 
I mean, Trump can do just filibuster forever. So can Obama. All right. Bush the younger was a different cat. Um, but I, I discuss with them. I say, when I ask you a question, if you're too long winded on it, I'm going to raise my finger and I show them the finger I'm going to raise. That means I want to get in and I don't want to interrupt you in a rude way. If you run through the finger and it's not the middle finger, Frank, it's, <laughs> it's the index finger. If you run through that, I'm going to interrupt you. And both Obama and Trump, they acceded to that rule. Once I raised that finger, they wrapped it. <laughs> and I could get in with a follow-up, which is the key to every presidential interview. Well, it doesn't make much sense, or you said this, or you said that, um, that kind of thing. You've got to be very well prepared. You have to be respectful. The mistake that Megyn Kelly made way back in People are still remembering that, I'm sure, in the first debate on the Republican side in 2016. The question she asked about Donald Trump's past disrespectful statements about women was valid. It it was a valid question, but she did it in a prosecutorial tone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was accusatory. Now, last week, Bear did not do that. And that's why the interview had more value than some of the recent Trump interviews. He wasn't disrespectful and he wasn't prosecutorial. Um, He did point out a few things that Trump didn't like, but that's okay. I mean, we're not in business to make any politician look good. Of course. And if the politician's doing something bad that's hurting the folks, then it's our obligation to point that out. One last thing I want to ask you about before uh, killing the witches is you did a terrific interview with Bill Barr last week, the former attorney general who was generally seen as a Trump defender, but he's been pretty critical of Trump, not only in terms of his electability, but some of the legal issues arising from this most recent indictment. Now, uh, President Trump bashes him like crazy. He also bashes uh, John Bolton. He's bashed uh, Anthony Scaramucci and countless other folks that have become critics of him. And I do wonder what that says to the public that he hired all these people and appointed them to such lofty positions. And now he's calling them all a bunch of losers. The Trump supporters are divided into categories. So the MAGA people, about 35 percent of the Republican Party, I think, they, they don't care what Trump did or said. They're going to support him. They just like his style. They like what he did in office. So whether he hired and fired doesn't matter to them. The moderate Republicans, I think, are wary of Trump's style. Not so much his governance, which was pretty good, I thought. Country was economically buoyant, and our foreign policy was pretty effective. And those are the facts. It doesn't matter what the opposition says. You can prove those facts. But his style of confrontation and never being able to accept any criticism whatsoever, that rankles some of the moderate Republicans and independents, which is why he lost in 2020. And then finally, it's the he's never going to get away from the 2020 election, and that tees a lot of voters off. They go, okay, some 
agree with him and some don't, but we got to look forward. And Donald Trump continues to go backward. And so you, you divide the potential voters into those three categories. Can he get enough to put him over the Democrats in 24? Nobody can say. It's a tight situation. You have, with the Killing series, written the best-selling non, uh, nonfiction historically, The Salem Witch Trials, Killing the Witches, where you explore the horror of Salem, Massachusetts. I think most people know the basic story, the basic premise of the witch trials. Why is this such an important story for people to look at these days? Do you see any corollaries between what happened in 1692, Salem, Massachusetts, and what's happening these days? Sure, that's why I wrote the book. So this will be the 13th Killing Book. And Killing the Witches takes us back to the founding, not the founding fathers, way, way past them, okay? The founding, physical founding of this country. And in that founding, the Puritans, who came over on the Mayflower, and we will put you on that boat. You will be riding over from England to Massachusetts, and it is a harrowing experience. Everybody thinks Thanksgiving, oh, yeah, everybody had a great time. What a blast. Oh, boy, no, sir. It was rough. So today we have in our society a denial of due process, mainly engineered by the press, the corrupt media. Back then, the witch trials were engineered by corrupt ministers. But it's the same denial of due process. Now, we're not hanging anybody, but we're destroying a lot of people. So every headline, every accusation is true. And the the poor person accused, if they didn't do it, has no recourse. They're destroyed. So I took that and I put it into a tale of history that you're not going to forget. Now, Tilly Witches comes out September 26th. Of course, you can pre-order on Amazon, BillOReilly.com, wherever you want. But it's really three books. It's explaining the origins of this country, how people got here and how they behaved when they arrived. And it wasn't really good. They were brutal. Okay. Then number two, how a young teenager named Benjamin Franklin in Boston saw what was happening in Salem, Massachusetts, the horror there, and took that into adulthood. And that affected the U.S. Constitution, the way we live today. All of the religion that during the Constitution came from Franklin and his eye view of this atrocity in Salem. And then the final part of the book is about demon possession, because that's what witches are. They're in a league with Satan. They're possessed by Satan. They do Satan's work. And thousands and thousands of people throughout history were executed as witches. In Salem, the number was 20, all hung. Nobody was burned. They burned them in Europe. But today, the demonic possession thing through the movie The Exorcist is very vivid in the minds of most people. And I get into how that movie evolved and what happened during the shooting of the movie, and it's based on a real case. And we uncovered all this unbelievable stuff. So from top to bottom, I think people will be enthralled with Killing the Witches.
Well, you know, I can't wait to read it. It sounds great. And people can pre-order it at BillOReilly.com. And that's actually what I was going to ask you is during the during the McCarthy era, the communist witch hunts, one of the things people forget is that some of the people accused of being communist were actually communists. And we know you, your point about de- demonic possession well taken. The current pope, the previous pope, they all participated in doing exorcisms. So there's exorcisms that really do go on. I've interviewed Catholic priests. Yeah. That are exorcists. Is there any any possibility that, and this is a serious question, it may sound silly, but is there any possibility that some of the people that were executed for being witches were actually witches? No. And we go through that. You'll see it. All right? Um, There were all innocent people. In the McCarthy witch hunt, there were communists, but so what? Under our Constitution, you have a right sure. to be a communist. Right. And your life right. should be destroyed. Today, there are people who do bad things. And the press is an obligation to expose those bad things if there is proof. You've got to back up the allegation. Obviously, People in Salem couldn't back up that these people were witches. Where do you see what the accusations were? It was insane. All right? So that's what the term witch hunt is, that you go after people, you smear them, you put uh, a spell on them, if you will, that they're horrible people, and you don't have any backup for it. And that's happening today, every day in this country, because the press allows it to happen. Yeah. Trial by media. No way to go. I can't wait to read the book. And uh, still very much in the news. Recently, uh, the state of Connecticut just voted to exonerate 12 people who more than 370 years ago were convicted of witchcraft. So uh, the book could not be at a more timely, timely position. Uh, I do hope that uh, demonic possession or witchcraft can somehow explain what is going on at City Field with the New York Metropolitans, because if you look at where they have been, they are the worst team money can buy bar none i feel sorry for the mets i'm gonna go pretty soon and rally them myself um and we may have to do an exorcism in the dugout <laughs> bill thank you for the time it's uh, a real treat to have you on the program you give us all sorts of credibility when someone of your stature comes on this program and i appreciate it very much my pleasure frank see you If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, feel free to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.